For those of you who were not at our family meeting this past Sunday, we presented Manny to you guys as potentially our next elder here at MCC. For us as a church, we are an elder-led church. Our elders uh, live in this biblical model of church leadership. And for a course of the past year, we ident- where you go? Come on, where you? Just, you're standing behind you. You're sneaking up on, I don't trust, I, no, I'm just kidding. I totally trust you. Um, these guys, Manny has been journeying with our current team of elders, and we've been getting to know each other. We've been making sure we align biblically. We've been making sure that, that Manny just isn't a guy with a lot of wisdom, but he's also a guy with a lot of depth. He's a guy who loves to serve God's people. He's a, he's a man of integrity, even in his own home. And so we try to do our best due diligence when we invite people to come into this role as an elder, because it is a very, very, very important and critical role for us as a church and for God's church as a whole. And so I'm happy to announce that after we all voted on him, um, he officially passed the vote with flying colors and Manny is our next elder here at MCC. Uh, This is a a really awesome day for me. Manny is one of the guys who um, embodies, if nothing else, what servant leadership really looks like. Uh, there was a, a Roman historian was talking about the early church, and he said the, the peculiar thing about this early Christian movement that was starting is that the people, it seemed as if they were looking to share their crisis with each other. If someone was going through something, the peer person who was not going through something was anxious to borrow crisis from them so that they could have a piece of it too. And man, that has been many multiple times when the Shoemake family has been in crisis, he has jumped right in and helped me in the midst of that. And so just friend to friend, brother to brother, take the whole pastor hat off. Um, I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for you. And I love to see how God's hand is on you and your family. And Shonda, thank you for being the behind the scenes magic that really makes him the man that he is. <laughs> Manny, tell us a little bit about um, how you, your heart for MCC and your heart for this role. So, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to say that um, we are extremely thankful that we found MCC uh, for our family, for our girls, our beautiful daughters, um, and that it's a home where they can grow um, and, and, and just grow in their wisdom of the Lord. Um, so, we're thankful for that. Um, we're just really thankful also that during this elder process that I was able to walk with Pastor Trent and Morell and Craig, as we went through the um, SEAL Team 6 biblical elder process, <laughs> and um, just, wanted, <laughs> just want everyone to know that um, we're here to serve, and I'm just happy to uh, join this, uh, this leadership team and, and be able to serve you all, and I'm here to help. Okay? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. If you would, just as an extension of your heart, just kind of reach your hand out, pray over Manny and his family. Father God, I thank you for the gift that it is to be led by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the gift that it is that your Holy Spirit is inside of each of us. And Father, I am so thankful that you allowed your divine will to send Manny and his family here. God, we know you know what you're doing. And we thank you for the way that you have had your hand on him throughout the years of his life, the divine providence in this guy's story is nothing short of the hand of God. And Father, we pray in this moment that you would continue to even pour out more wisdom, more knowledge, more humility, more patience, 
Because any time we get ready to um, turn the dial up and how we lead and serve you, we know that that frustrates the enemy. And so we pray for your divine hand protection on the Manny family. We pray your divine hand of protection on MCC. And Father, we look forward to the years to come knowing that if we abide in you, there is fruit. Fruit that will last from generations. Fruit that will far outlast me, Manny, this current elder teams, and really anybody in this room. And that's the type of fruit we are praying for as a church. And we long to see in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. All right, so if you're in your Bible now, you should be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we are in the Faith Hall of Fame chapter. We've been journeying through this book of Hebrews, and one of the things that we've come up to in this passage is this pastor to the church in Hebrews has been telling them to not let go of the faith they have. They, like many of us, they've bumped into this tension between do I remain comfortable or do I continue to follow Christ? Comfort or Christ? And he sees them in this tension, and he goes, I want to show you these heroes of faith who intentionally and purposely chose discomfort and watch their faith become evident as God came through over and over and over again on their, on their behalf. And all of these heroes of faith are pointing forward to the ultimate hero that is Jesus. And so we've navigated through some of these heroes so far in chapter 11. And today we're going to get into two in particular. One is kind of infound within the nation of Israel. It's leader Joshua who leads this nation of people to encircle this the city that is called Jericho and these walls fall down. And in the midst of that, there's a very, very unlikely hero, a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. And we're going to see their heroic faith on display. So if you got a Bible, go to Rome or Hebrews 11, chapter 30 or verse 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of God. There's a lot of story here. We're going to hopefully be able to discover this and fly through it. If you remember... This pastor to the church, as he's trying to help people understand what heroic faith is, he first gives them a really good definition of what faith is. He does that in Hebrews 11.1. We've got to make sure we're on the same page as we get ready to journey through. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Now remember, we talked about this word hope. And we said that the precursor to faith is discontentment. The fact that I would actually be hoping things would get better. And so if you're here in this world and you're here in this room and you're like, hey, there's some things in my life that I am discontent with, what is hopefully happening in your life is you're hoping they will get better. If you're discontent with the amount of money you make, you're hoping I would get to a place of more financial freedom. If you're discontent with your marriage, you're hoping things would get better. So he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, which is our way of understanding that contentment in this life can be a enemy and a combatant to true faith. That our discontentment is actually a thing that is a really, really good thing that makes us hope in the things that are to come. And we see this in these stories. These people are hoping for a land. They're hoping for a nation that will populate, that the Lord will come through. They're hoping for God to continue to show up and be on their side. And so he says, faith is this assurance of things hoped for. It's this conviction of things not seen. He goes on further and says, without faith, 
It is impossible to please him. The him there is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. We're going to get into today what I believe are two stories that are proof positive that God does reward, that, that, that God does deliver even those who seek him by faith. Let's start with this Walls of Jericho story. There's a lot in here and hopefully we can figure out what's going on with a story that sometimes our historical recollection does not supersede past what we heard in children's church or in a Bible with cartoon colorings in it. And so we're going to try to get really into the story today and figure out what was really going on there. So he pulls these guys out in Hebrews 11 too. He talks about, wait, that's not the one I want. There we go, 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. After that, they had been circled for seven days. So if you got a Bible, I want to take you deep into it, okay? Let's go to Joshua and actually look at some of the stuff that happens in the story. Hopefully by now you've understood that um, as, a, as your pastor, I don't want to just give you a word. I want to go to the word with you. And that's what we're going to do today. If you got a Bible, go to the book of Joshua. It's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So you're six book in. love hearing those pages turn. As a pastor, it's, it's an honor to be a part of a church that's hungry for the word. So to give you a little bit of context for who in the world this Joshua guy is, he was essentially Moses' right-hand man. He was a commander of the army of the nation of Israel. After Moses leads the nation of Israel across the Red Sea on dry land because God they spend a lot of time wandering in the wilderness because of their own stupidity and lack of faith. During that period of time, Moses dies and God institutes Joshua as the new leader of this nation. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, you see God show up to Joshua and he tells him, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Three times he says, I'm gonna show you the third time in verse nine, chapter one, verse nine. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Essentially what he's saying to Joshua, every piece of land that your feet step on is my land that I'm giving to you because I am with you. And I don't know about you, but man, I can have a lot of questions about God. I can have a lot of questions about life. I can have a lot of uncertainty about where our country is going, where our um, faith in our country, even the church is going in our country. I can have a lot of questions about a lot of things, but it brings me so much assurance to know that God is with me. Do you know that God's with you? Do you feel that God's with you? Less amens. <laughs> That's the hard part, right? You can know it, but sometimes it's hard to feel it, isn't it? He says, I am with you. So Joshua assumes command. He, he becomes the one who's going to lead this people. God tells him, I'm going to give you this land. Uh, Joshua, being a good military commander, he sets out to have a reconnaissance mission. He sends two spies into this land that is Jericho. It's inhabited by the Amorites or the Canaanites. They're, they're very pagan. They're very wicked people. I'm going to get into that a little bit more here in a second. Very wicked, very pagan, very evil people. He sends Joshua, or Joshua sends two spies to go out in that area. They show up to a prostitute named Rahab's house. Uh, some of you know this story a little bit. 
She tells them some things about it. Eventually, word gets out that these spies have entered into this area and people come knocking on Rahab's door saying, ah, where are these spies at? And Rahab throws them off of the spies' scent and says they went that way, essentially. Meanwhile, they're on the roof hiding under uh, some flax grains and they're up there on the roof. She's hidden them. And I want you to see what is so special about this woman. Why she... Remember, what part of Hebrews are we in? What is, it, what, the, what is the moniker of chapter 11 of Hebrews? The hall of faith. And here we have an Amorite prostitute right in the middle. And, and so that should throw a, a big question mark over your head of like, what in the world got her, of all people, into this place? If you got a Bible and you're looking at it, I pray you go to chapter 2, verse 8 of Joshua. So this is, she's thrown them. She sent the diversion. She sent the guys off. Spies are still on the roof. Chapter two, verse eight. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, listen to the faith. I know that the Lord has given you the land. I don't know if you're tracking yet, but there hasn't even been a whole lot of Israelite people who we have recorded saying that yet. But we have a Canaanite prostitute. The Lord has given you the land. Why in the world does she feel like that? How does, she, how does she know that that is the case? She says, and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land, that's her land, that's, that's Jericho, melt away before you. She's essentially saying, we are shaking in our boots when we hear about this little ragtag group of people called the nation of Israel. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. That, that's just a, a fancy way of saying you obliterated those people violently, you devoted to destruction. It sounds nice, but it didn't look nice if you would have been there watching it. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, she's talking about their response as a culture when they learned about this Israelite people doing what they had done. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, here's, the, here's, where, here's where it goes from just, we were scared of you. And she makes it not just about how her nation and her tribe felt, but she makes it about how she feels. Listen to what she says. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth below. Notice what she does not say. These Amorite Canaanite people are polytheistic, which means they worship a multitude of gods. She says, I know your God is God. The one, the only, the preeminent one. He is that God. So this is crazy. So what's happened here is this reputation of the Israelites has gotten out. And what I love about this story, and honestly, it's what I pray about for MCC, so much has happened in their little story that everybody around realizes something critical. They realize there is no way that that happens unless God is on their side. It wasn't their wisdom. It wasn't their skill. It wasn't their military might. There is no way that the Red Sea just magically opens and they go through. And then when Pharaoh and his folks try to follow through, the sea just closes back in on them. There's no way that happens. Also, there's no way that they go defeat these Amorite kings because we know how big those kings and their armies are. And they're just this group of people who's wandering out in the wilderness. There's no way that these things happen unless God 
did it. And I don't know about you, but but here's the deal. This is one of the things I pray for um, our staff team and maybe even our elders here at MCC. I look around the table and kind of with tongue in cheek say, none of you are all stars. And I love that. Because what that means is when God moves here, nobody will say it was because of your wisdom. It was because of your skills. It was because of your abilities. Oh, that MCC, they just got a really great group of elders. Or they got a really great staff. Or have you seen that lady Miss Tiny sing on stage? That's the reason it's growing. No. I believe what God wants to do here, what he wants to do in our city, and even on a personal level, what he wants to do in your life is something that is so great that nobody would look at you and go, it was you. But they would look at you and they would go, it was God. There's no way. And this is what's happening with this woman. She gets that. And she goes, it's got to be their God. It's not their people. It's not their nation. It's not their dietary plan. It's not their military. It is their God. And she puts faith in this God. She starts with faith. And then I like this lady. She cuts a deal. She basically says, here's, what, here's what's going to happen, fellas. I could have totally said, they're on my roof. <laughs> and y'all would have been toast. She doesn't do that. Instead, she sends them in a different direction, essentially saving their lives. And then she says, I know that y'all are going to get this city. I know that it's going to be destroyed. I know that this city, in God's statements, this city has already been signed over to the nation of Israel. She knows and understands that. She says, so when y'all come in, spare my family. Have grace on my family. The word she uses is be kind. It's the word kesed which means favorable covering of grace. Give us a covering. Cover us with the grace. Be kind to us. And the spies say back to her, because you have been kessed, because you have treated us kindly, we will treat you kindly. Because you covered us, we will cover you. Which is all this is foreshadowing what's to come. Story goes on. Spies go back and they tell Joshua the things that they've seen. The nation of Israel then gets on a roll with some miraculous things happening. Um, I think, um, let me fast forward through some stuff here. I want to show you this map. <clears throat> so where the nation of Israel at is in, in this point is this place called Shittim. Um, don't let your kids hear about that. Um, <laughs> they're camped out at Shittim. And this is where they're hanging out. Now, this is Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. There is a river called the Jordan River that runs all the way through right here. This is where they're crossed. There's this wild story where the nation of Israel um, has to cross this, and they can't cross it. The Jordan River is wide, very wide. And so what God does is the same thing that he did when they were trying to cross the Red Sea, is he dries it up so that they can cross, which is wild that they, on their way out to go into the wilderness, what did they cross? Let's see, they cross a body of water. Now as they get ready to go into the promised land, what's happening again? They're crossing water. Sometimes following God is going to feel like you're walking in circles and history is repeating itself. And honestly, I would say, if you feel like you're kind of walking in circles, it may actually be a telltale sign that you are actually following God when you see history repeating itself. Our God likes to do that. He works in these details to show that he's writing the story. He sends them back across. They cross with the Ark of Covenant. They cross. They set up these 12 pillars on the other side of the water. They get to the other side. And then God asks Joshua to consecrate the whole nation of Israel. Now, this is where things get, if you're a, a guy, 
in the nation of Israel, a little complicated for you, or no fun, or definitely uncomfortable. So consecrated, part of what that meant was, again, they're preparing their hearts inwardly, but it also meant that they were going to prepare their flesh. Part of God's covenant with the nation of Israel for the males was this thing called circumcision. Google it on your way home. And that was something that was supposed to happen on the eighth day. And while they were in Egypt, that was happening. They had, uh, you know, the easily grabbable things of medical stuff to be able to walk through that and you could heal up and everything else. And when you did it on the eighth day of a little child, it was not necessarily as treacherous as if you did it to a, a guy my age. It'd be no fun. But while they're wandering in the wilderness, God presses pause on circumcision. Which, and again, there's all sorts of hidden meanings behind that. But nobody for that wilderness generation had been circumcised. But they get right across to this place of Gilgal, and God goes, <laughs> all right, it's time. <laughs> and um, I don't know how everybody felt about that. I would not have been psyched. Um, but <laughs> that's what God institutes. And there's this really fascinating story about how it all comes up. If you've got a Bible, go look at um, chapter 5. Uh, we'll start at verse 8. It all happens. Chapter 5, verse 8. So it says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in their camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, this is, this, this is so special. Today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means rolled away. What did he say he rolled away? He said, I have, on this day, I am rolling away the reproach of Egypt. Do you guys remember back to the story when we got to Abraham before the blessing had ever really came? Abraham, because he needed some food, he went down to Egypt and some stupid stuff happened in Egypt. He lied and said Sarai was his what? Sister. And Pharaoh is about to get with his sister and he starts breaking out with plagues and all sorts of bad stuff happened. And he realizes this is not his sister, this is his wife. And he basically relinquishes his deal that he made with Abraham and says, have your wife back. But also he gave him all sorts of slaves, all sorts of servants, all sorts of jewels, all sorts of stuff. And part of that, part of the servant, the humans that Pharaoh gave back was this lady whose name was Hagar, who became the one through which a whole lot of really big problems came when Sarai came to Abraham and said, here's a thought, sleep with my servant. Again, fellas, anytime your wife comes to you with ideas that terrible, you have permission to say, no, honey, that's stupid. Uh, Abraham did not. And we made the point way back there when we were talking about that. It is very easy for God to get his people out of Egypt. What is harder is God getting Egypt out of his people. And so when you come to this story and it says there at Gilgal, after this consecration happens, remember, they have already, how long have they been out of Egypt for how long? 40 plus years. They've wandered in the world. They've already been free from Egypt. But 40 years have to pass before the reproach of Egypt finally gets off of them. And did they throw it off of themselves? No. Even then, God lifted that off. He rolled it away, this reproach, from the land that they had been freed from. It takes a while for what you were in to get all the way off of you if you like keeping it around. And so... They consecrate themselves this day. And then there's this 
fascinating story in verses 13 through 15. Joshua has got the nation right here, I mean like butting up against the city of Jericho. Now when you think about the city of Jericho, the city was surrounded by walls. It was only about eight acres big. That's just about as, it wasn't a junk, don't think that he's, there are walls all around a place like Henry County. That's not what it was. I mean, honestly, probably a better example to think if you put giant walls all around the property of McDonough Christian Church, that's probably a better example. So there's giant walls all around eight acres, essentially of this packed in, very fortified city. I believe Joshua in this story is probably sneaking up as a good military commander would do. He's sneaking up. I imagine this, at least in my mind's eyes, not in the Bible. This is my details. Me filling this in here. I believe he comes in the middle of the night and he's like a good military commander kind of sneaking in. He's looking for weak points in the wall. He's trying to figure out how are we going to get in here? God has told us that it is going to be ours. But up until this point, God has not given him this, you know, run some laps strategy. And he's there. And... This crazy story happens that I don't know about you, but a lot of people have heard the story of Jericho over and over and over again, but they've never heard this part. I love this part. Verse 13 of chapter five. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. Pause right there. All right. So you're there middle of the night and then you're kind of checking things out and this somebody's out there with sword drawn, not in scabbard, but drawn. All right. So Joshua was already like, I think he's in ready mode. Like he's pulling his stuff out. And there's this throwdown that's probably about to happen. And you see what Joshua says next. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Very normal conversation to have with somebody who's obviously in military garb. You meet on a battlefield in hostile territory. Are you for us? Or are you against us? And I love the response. No. Are you for us or against us? No. Listen to what comes next. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Most theologians and scholars would call, would call this passage, what's happening right here, this commander of the Lord's army, a Christophany. A Christophany in scripture is any time in the Old Testament where you have the pre-incarnate Christ showing up and entering into a story. Most of the time, the ways you can tell you're in a Christophany or you're, you're seeing one in scripture is the people in response, whether it's Joshua or kings or priests, they fall down and they worship. Some people would want to write it off as this is an angel. You don't fall down and worship angels and call them Lord. Something about this figure, this pre-configured Christ that he's seeing there in that moment makes Joshua understand that I did not just bump into an angel. I bumped into the Lord himself, the commander of the Lord's army. Listen to what he says. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his faith to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Before we get into that part, let's make this practical. Because man, oh man, do we do this with our commander, Jesus. So many times, we get these places and we start asking Jesus these questions. We get an argument with somebody at work. Well, Jesus, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or her side? Let's go there. We talk about politics. Well, Jesus, are you on the Republican side or are you on the Democrat side? Whose side are you on, Jesus? 
God, whose side are you on? Friend, I pray you would hear how Jesus answers this question. Whose side are you on, Jesus? No. It's Jesus' way of saying, without saying, your question is stupid. It is never going to be about am I on your side or on their side. I am God. It is about are you on my side? Do you know who I am? Do you know my will? Do you know my way? Do you have faith in me? I don't bend and cave to your policies and procedures. Don't try to pigeonhole me into your party or your arguments. I am God. This is why he says, I love this. Are you for us or against us? No. <laughs> I love that answer. And I think it's one that we really need to know and understand here in 2023 and beyond. That it's not about, is God on my side? It is about, am I on his? Do I know who he is? So Joshua has this miraculous moment. And I believe in this moment, he leaves knowing fully that he is on God's side and that God is getting ready to come through through the nation of Israel. And he's told them what he's about to do to this people. And then in verse, or in chapter six, we see the story. And we'll pick it up. We'll kind of read through and skim a little bit and highlight a little bit, but let's go through it. Chapter six. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. What that's saying there is they were terrified. They have locked, they have full-blown quarantine. They have locked it down. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. You know what God just did right there? He just quoted a prostitute, which is awesome. That that God and the prostitute are on the same page. Uh, Let that mess with your faith a little bit. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. That's the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant is, is this big gold box with poles coming out of it that represented the presence of God. The ark of the covenant was where on the, the day of atonement, there was the mercy seat. It was where the priest would come in and put the blood of the lamb. We talked about all of that in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. Can't go into all that now, but very, very important piece of equipment that really represents the presence of God with the people of God. So he says, um, verse five, and when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So from there, God has essentially issued this plan that you're going to get into this place and you're going to march, march around day one. You're going to march around and you're going to blow these trumpets. Nobody say a word. And then you're going to do that for six days. And on the seventh day, I want you to go around seven times, blowing the, blowing the trumpet the entire time. And then once you make that seventh lap on the seventh day, shout with a great shout and the walls will come falling down. Um, I want to try to show you some of what these walls would look like. I might have to fast forward a little bit to get there. Yeah. So most uh, archaeological digs around the city of Jericho have come to the fact that there were actually two walls. So there was the lower city wall and the upper city wall, and they had this kind of retention area right here that served as this embankment, that if you made it over this, you still had a long way to go. Uh, Oftentimes along these walls, they would have archers and people that they could shoot down. So it was a very impenetrable city, and that's what's happening here. With these walls, there becomes the way that they live as a society. 
what they would do because these walls were so huge and so fortified, many of the, a lot of the time, and this is what I believe is happening in Rahab's case, people, because you already had a back wall, would build three, three sides along the wall so that houses would be literally built into the wall. It's not like it's inside the wall as much as it's one, the back wall of the house is the wall of the city. The more money you had, the further you could get into the heart. But a prostitute, she's rocking and rolling on the outskirts. So this is the city, and this is what Joshua gets as his plan. And you can read this, and this is the part of the story where we pick up with what we most of the time know. Like, this story makes absolutely no sense. If I had to summarize briefly, the main thing that you need to understand about the story goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. God is doing this to show that it's not by military might that this happens, that it is not an act of war, this marching around, but it's actually an act of worship. They go around, and, and never, when the nation of Israel is going to war, you know who they don't bring with them? Priests. They're like, leave those guys at home. Let them study and pray. And They send the warriors to war. Another thing that never goes to war with the nation of Israel is the Ark of the Covenant. They got in a lot of trouble for doing that a time earlier in the story. And so in this instance, God, and I need you to see this, God is not saying, I need you to go to war. God is saying, I need you to go to worship which I would just say to you in whatever battle you're facing right now, you're trying to come up with strategies. You're kind of trying to come up with all these plans and all these things that you need to do. The story of Joshua teaches us that sometimes worship is war. That's what it looks like. Sometimes it looks like getting in your Toyota Camry, turning the music all the way up and praising God all the way home because you just got a call that you never thought you would get. Sometimes it looks like uh, the last place I ever feel like going is showing up at church on a day like today, but I'm here. My act of war is my worship. My prayer is my weapon. And this is what the nation of Israel does. And it makes no sense. And again, I, really, I believe that the reason it makes no sense is so that nobody, when we come back and read the story, we're, we're looking at the story going, look how amazing the nation of Israel was. Man, they just really had it all together. Look how well they, again, Moses, when he's leading the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, you know what his job is? Staff up, staff down. I mean, it's like, the antiquity equivalent of a clap on, clap off. Like, that's their role in things. And in here, I mean, it's a little bit more intensive. They have to, they have to go on a little trek. They, they march around, probably been about a mile. It's probably taking about 45 minutes to an hour to get around at one time. But then they're like, hey, just go back and hang out for the rest of the day. And then on day seven, which if you're tracking, what is the seventh day in the Hebrew calendar? Sabbath. You know what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath? Go march around a city seven times, blowing trumpets all day long, okay? Which is, again, God pointing to, this is not an act of war. You're, this activity is actually, what is the Sabbath for? Rest. This activity is actually your passivity, and it's you resting in my will and my ways to accomplish this thing. And the details are amazing. One of the things that they have, <clears throat> these priests who get invited is this thing called a shofar, all right? This is a shofar, and this is a, like a real one, as much as I could tell from Amazon. It kind of smells like it was, so I'm, I'm guessing it was, or maybe it was the factory. Anyway, what's crazy about the story, I never put these two things together. It's like God bookends his beginning parts of his story with his people, and then them re-entering the promised land, he takes them back to places where it all started. Do you remember back to when this whole promise started? God told Abraham he was going to have a child. What was that child's name going to be? Isaac. And then God told Abraham a really crazy thing. 
He said, go sacrifice Isaac. I want to test your faith. And God goes, or Abraham goes to the mountain with his son, and he's getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, what animal gets caught in the thicket? A ram. Now, is it caught by the foot, the tail? What's it caught by? It's caught by the horns. The horn was a thing that symbolized the providential love of God to send a substitutionary sacrifice. And this horn became a symbol. What the priests would use, they used it on the, also on the, the day of Jubilee. It was something they would use as a celebration of freedom. It was not a, a, a thing that the priest would use in war. They would have regular trumpets for that. They would bring this only for occasions where it wasn't war, it was worship. Now, I wasn't in the band growing up. If I was in the nation of Israel marching around the seas of Jericho, I'd have been one of the guys in the back with the sword. Uh, I would not have been one of the guys with this thing because I, I, I failed band. I didn't do band. I was a jock. I'm going to do my best to try to make this thing sound like maybe what it would sound like to have us a little auditory experiment here today. So do not laugh at me, okay? You can't laugh. You got to promise not to laugh. I'm going to try to do my best. They said you have to moisten your lips. Um, so let me try this real, real quick. Jessica was making fun of me at the house last night. <laughs> It was bad. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I might have to bring somebody up uh, to, get, to get it for me. All right. Here we go. All right. Stop. All right. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Hold on. Hold on. That's pretty close. That's about, that's about as good as I got it last night, right? All right. So imagine seven of these and guys who actually know what they're doing, not a hack pastor job doing it. Um, that's what they're doing. So they're dead silent. And the only thing, and this is, this is what really blows my mind about the story. It took, it takes me, it's hard for me to do that for like 13 seconds. How long did it say they were blowing those trumpets? Continually. So 45 minutes of just straight. And then the day they have to go around seven times, we're talking seven hours worth of. Like, if you're the people in the city, you're like, oh my God, that. <laughs> Shut up. We're trying to take naps. But this is, this is, again, this is the oddity of God's story. Now, what's really fascinating about the shofar, you know when it shows back up again in Scripture? Revelation. The shofar blast, most theologians, scholars who are putting biblical history together, would say that it's at the sound of the shofar that the rapture is kick-started, which is wild to think about how all these things kind of work into place from the, sacri the, the sacrifice of a ram caught by its horns in a thicket to a shofar being blown for the city being captured. And then at the very end, or the rapture of the church, the same thing being used as a symbol, not of man's victory, not of man's might, but a symbol of God intervening on man's half, behalf to bring about the victory. It's a wild story. Oh, what's crazy about the story is there's a lot of bloodshed. And honestly, it's a really hard story to get your mind around because what you see here in the story is the nation of Israel comes in and it is scorched earth's policy. They don't come in and go, all right, let's just find all the males and we're gonna kill the males. That's a bad thing. They don't come in and, and go, well, according to the Geneva Convention, we're just gonna take you to your POW camp. They come in and they kill everything. Now, you can hear that. The way I hear that and go, God, everything, kids, cattle, I and mean, what the cows do? Like, what, why are we killing 
everything. Well, the good thing about scripture is scripture most often can handle our big questions. There's going to be some things you're never going to fully understand about God, but scripture does a good job of even answering our biggest, hardest questions. I don't know if you remember this passage. We talked about the blood path covenant that God had with Abraham when he cut the animals in half. At the very end of that covenant, there was this really strange line. Um, let's we'll read the whole thing. So then the Lord said to Abraham, this is the beginning of the covenant for the land, the Lord, and the lineage. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. This is God. This is, this is years and years before Egypt ever happened, God calling the shot. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's exactly how long they were in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's God bringing his judgment, the slaughter, the desolation of destruction, the angel of death. That's God doing what he did in Egypt. This is God calling a shot in Genesis before Exodus ever happened. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. One of the lesser known parts about the nation of Israel crossing the Red Sea is Pharaoh didn't just say, y'all get out of here. They gave them gold, silver. They're giving, they, the Bible talks about the Israelites plundered the Egyptians as they're rolling out. And again, God called that shot. For as you, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Now I was just saying how Abraham's gonna die. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. On God's grand timetable, that is exactly where Joshua is. Now here's this strange line. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We read that at the end of that passage and we go, what was that talking about? Well, fast forward to our story now. Do you know who the Amorite people are? It's people who were there in Jericho. Now, God says of these people way back when, 400 years before, when he's talking to Abraham, these are some messed up people. They're sinners. They're doing some terrible, horrible, awful things. But their sins are not yet complete. I have to remain patient with them. Let's talk about this. Because at, at one point, we can read this story and go, God, how, what kind of God could I believe in and trust in that would just wipe out all these people in this place that is Jericho? Well, let me talk to you about what was actually going on amongst the Amorites. The reason that God, I believe, says what he says here. One of the things that was huge for the Amorites was fertility cults. Fertility cults to the goddess Asherah. So, for instance, say you were a woman who was getting ready to uh, give birth. What this fertility cult would come in and do, they would say, well, if you want your baby to be born and to be healthy, then your husband needs to go spend a week with the temple prostitute to ensure that you will be fertile and your child would be healthy. Another thing that these Amorites did was they sacrificed their firstborn to their two different Amorite gods, the God of Baal and the God of Moloch. This is very gruesome, so forgive me on this, but I want you to understand this people and the patience that God had on them for 400 years to hopefully help you understand why or how God could go scorched earth with them in the story of Jericho. Their actual statues that have been uncovered in antiquity where they show furnaces of the God of Baal. It's a, a furnace that is fashioned into a statue of their God Baal and it has outstretched arms. And because of one of the things that they would sacrifice to the God Baal for their own personal prosperity were children, they would let the furnace get blazing hot inside of the statue to Baal and then place 
uh, stripped down naked newborn firstborn child into the arms of that heated up statue and the child screams and they called it the, the laughter of Baal and then the child would slip into the furnace and be burned. This is what was happening with these Amorite peoples. They have uncovered graveyards of thousands of thousands of infants there in this land. This is who this people were. Now, so you can come to this part and go, well, how in the world could God let that happen for 400 years and, and just sit around and, and wait till it gets complete? What kind of God lets those babies have that thing happen to them? What type of God lets a wife's husband who's getting ready to have a child go sleep with a temple prostitute for a week so that he can come out and have a great childhood? What God signs off on that and then signs off on the walls of Jericho? All I can tell when I come to stories like this, the way I come away from these things that I cannot understand, I come away from them going, thank God I'm not God. This is a decision that is way past our pay grade. And then we come to a story of Jericho and we go, well, how could God do that? We get to this story and we go, how could God do that? And then we get to Jericho and go, how could God do that? There's these times where you come to this tension in the word where you go, I don't know. But I'm glad I don't have to make the decisions about how I punish wicked, sinful humanity. And I'm so glad that me, a sinner, has been forgiven by this God. This God has been gracious to me. This God has not wiped my life out. And when I come to that place, when I realize how gracious he's been to me, it reminds me of, a, of Rahab and her story. Because when you go back to Rahab's story, by faith, this prostitute did not perish. She was the one, and her family were the one group of people out of all of this people who were spared. All of this people who for generations, 400 years plus, had been doing wickle, wicked, vile things in the sight of God. And she and her family are the only ones who get spared. Why do they get spared? Because they had a great reputation in the community? Because she was just, you know, a model society? She was serving on city council? No, she's a prostitute. She's the lowest of the low. She gets saved and her family gets spared by faith. And that again is the miracle of faith that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the amount of faith that you have is not what matters. What you did before your faith is not what matters. Who you put your faith in is the only thing that matters. And her faith is in Jesus. Her faith is in this God of these people. She knows that they can't do this. It's gotta be that God. And so... Very symbolic in the story here. She lets down a scarlet cord that hangs out of her window, symbolizing how one day, under the scarlet cord of the blood streaming down from a blood-stained wooden tool of crucifixion, the salvation of not just one family, but all families would come through Jesus. And what's wild about this is she lets this cord down out of her house to save her whole family and that salvation that came for her family pressed forward and foreshadowed the salvation of Jesus on the cross. But there's not just a metaphorical connection between Rahab and Jesus. There is a blood connection between Rahab and Jesus. This woman Rahab, this is crazy. You can go back and read this in the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. This woman Rahab, she went from prostitute to proselyte. She moves to the nation, with the nation of Israel into their new promised land country. She marries this guy named Salmon. Great baby name if you ladies are uh, looking for one. Salmon. S-A-L-M-O-N. Salmon. 
Salmon or Salmon. I don't know. Who knows? She marries him. And then they have a child. They have a child named Boaz. And then Boaz, he sees this peculiar woman out in a field, faithful, serving. And this woman catches his eye. And this woman happened to be named Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth have a child. And this child that Boaz and Ruth have is this son named Obed. And Obed gets a little bit older and he has a child and he has a child named Jesse. And then Jesse gets a little bit older and he has a child, one of his many sons, his youngest son, whose name is David, who becomes the king of Israel. And this David, who is the man after God's own heart, but had a great-great-grandma who was a prostitute. (laughs) She was out there. But despite the fact that she was out there, she is in here over and over and over again. She is in here in the word of God mentioned as this woman who God's great redemptive plan came through, which should just show to any of you, because listen, there's somebody in this room and you're glad we don't know your whole story because you're worried like if they knew what I'd really done, and I don't mean that like tongue in cheek. There's people in this room, you've had abortions. There's people in this room, you, you've had affairs. There's people in this room who you, you've been accomplices to potentially to murders. There's people in this room who you have stolen large amounts of money. There's people in this room who have done unspeakable things. But here, here's what I want you to understand. You get really caught up in the amount or the weight of your sin. Stop. My stealing a Snickers bar in second grade is, is the same thing of your abortion. Here's why. It's not about the amount or the weight of the sin. It's about who we did it against. And it could be my stealing the snicker bar and your murder. They were both against a holy, righteous, perfect God. And both of them deserved us, whether it's me and my snicker bar or you and your abortion, death. That's what we deserved. Everybody in the middle. This is why the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, church. And we can look at a story like Rahab and we can go, one, if we're the, a little bit more the righteous, high and mighty type, we can go, okay, how many holy, righteous women of God would have loved to have been in the family line of Jesus, yet there's a prostitute in there? How many righteous, good housekeeping, Martha Stewart type, holy Israelite women would have loved to know that the Messiah came through their bloodline, but he didn't. He came through a prostitute. And then there's the rebellious people in the room and you know you got a past, you know you got a history, and you know you got some stuff, there are some skeletons in your closet. Rahab should show you and tell you, if God can do that with her, who knows what he can do with me? There is no sin that he can't forgive. Go back to where we've already been in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, I think 1045. He is able to save to the uttermost because he lives to make intercession. Nothing gives him more joy than interceding for broken, lost, weary sinners. A doctor gets his fire in his guts, not from going, ew, that's gross. I hope somebody helps you. The doctor feels like his life mission and goal is accomplished when he's able to bring healing. So far be it from us to refuse to bring our mess, to bring our wounds, to bring our past to that doctor and let him heal us, forgive us, and deliver us in the same way that he did this family. I pray he can deliver you and your family. Just camp out there for a second. Some of you are sitting in this room and you're young. 
And the idea of having one of those creatures that just made that sound is very foreign to you. You're in this room, you're like, man, I don't have kids, I don't want babies, I don't want none of that, I don't want nothing to do with that. What I'm here to tell you is you got this uh, probably young woman, Rahab, living a life, sexual exploitation, and her faith saves her whole entire family. So young person in this room, don't underestimate the decision you're making right now to either go with the crowd, go with the culture, or to go with Christ. Your decision to go with Christ opposed to culture may be what saves your family and sets your family lineage up for a legacy that you're really, really proud of because God worked through it. I know it's hard. I know it's really easy to go with the flow right now, but my prayer is that you you hold fast to Jesus and you understand that you have no idea the implications of the decisions you make today and how they're gonna affect your faith. I said it last week. You make your decisions and then your decisions make you. And today... I don't want to invite you to make the most important decision you could ever make. The decision to surrender to Jesus, to accept him as your Lord and Savior, and trust that he will deliver you through sin into new life. If you never put your faith and hope and trust in him, I pray that today is that day that that happens. That you surrender and take that first step of obedience into faith into baptism. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Fill out one of those next step cards. We'll talk. But don't let what you know needs to happen remain something that doesn't happen because you're afraid. Rahab was afraid. She did something about it by faith. You're afraid. Do something about it by faith and to surrender to the only God who can save you out of what's coming. For the rest of us, we're here and we get this beautiful moment to be able to receive communion together. To see here in our hands You're holding what that scarlet cord foreshadow. Here in your hands, you're holding what the shofar was pointing to. The sacrifice that would be paid so that your life could be forgiven, free, and that your feet could go to a place that only faith could take you. As you commune with him today, I pray you Maybe like the nation of Israel. Have a little bit of time where you just stay silent. Just let him speak. And hear from your father. Hear from his son. And let the Holy Spirit guide you into what needs to happen next. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this is a book that is far thicker than what it looks like when it sits on a table. We thank you that this word all points perfectly to the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. I pray that this gospel that hopefully was proclaimed today would do the thing that only the gospel can do, which is save lives. For those of us in here who have surrendered to the gospel, I pray we take our steps into discipleship more and more that we surrender to you more and more, that we take these big laps of faith. And I pray a special prayer for the person who, who does feel like they're going in circles. Maybe today they feel like they're on lap six. I pray that they don't stop on six, God. That they take one more lap with you. 
and watch how you're going to come through. In your name, Jesus.